Would you open your Bibles tonight to the 15th chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 15. If you're reading in your pew Bible this evening, you'll find this on page 949. In tonight's reading from chapter 15, the apostle will continue as, as he did throughout the last chapter to discuss the issues of Christians living well together with other folk with whom they may differ on a number of things. Again, we're going to see how those who are strong in spiritual discernment should live with those who may be weaker in discernment and vice versa. Just to review the 14th chapter a bit, the first half of that previous chapter was basically dedicated to a warning about the danger of self-righteousness towards each other in the church. And then the second half of that last chapter dealt with the issue of asserting our right to Christian liberty in a way that would be disruptive to the unity of the church. Now, you might think that's quite enough about the matter, But Paul continues on a bit more now in chapter 15. You know, repetition of something in the Bible is one marker of its importance. Those who work to get along with others in the church, those who care about it, work towards it, sacrifice for it, are spending their energies in a good and God-honoring way. But there is one more reason that the apostle continues on with this subject, besides repetition. In our reading tonight, he's going to reveal the ultimate purpose, his ultimate purpose, for stressing the importance of Christian unity among differing kinds of people in the church. And that purpose, that purpose is going to take us into the heart of heaven itself. So I want you to give your full attention to God's holy word this evening as we uh, consider together Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor For his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let us pray together. Our Father, we know that Your word endures forever. 
but we are uh, mortal creatures. We endure uh, briefly in this world. We pray that your own spirit would uh, sink the word deeply into our hearts. As our brother John Currid would often say, O Lord, sear this meaning, this gospel text upon our hearts tonight. For we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Nobody likes a people pleaser. We teach our children not to aspire to be mere people pleasers, but instead follow your principles in life. And if you have to upset someone at some point, well, that's okay. That's the cost of living a principled life. In the church, there's almost nothing worse than you can say about someone than that they are a man pleaser. That is a person who's more concerned about impressing other people than glorifying God. And yet in our passage tonight, God's apostle Paul tells the congregation in Rome to please other people. He says, who are We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You see, this is a different kind of people pleasing. This is not the pleasing of others that comes out of some personal insecurity or weakness, but instead out of spiritual strength and confidence. Paul says he's specifically addressing the strong at this point. So this is, this is a different audience in a sense than we were talking about with people pleasers generally. It also has a different purpose than ordinary people pleasing does. Ordinary people pleasing is designed to make yourself more appreciated and beloved of others. But this kind of people pleasing that Paul is describing here is concerned with building others up. Verse 2. Specifically, I think it's implied, building up their faith. Paul writes, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now the Greek word used for please here is not a word that speaks of something that sort of happens by accident. But instead it involves intentional and deliberate and repeated conduct. It is, we might even say, like a spiritual discipline to please people in this way. It involves knowing enough about another person to know what they need in order to have their faith encouraged and strengthened. Then to plan to do what you can do to help that person and then finally to actually do it. You know, we talk a lot in our day about living intentionally, intentional living. But what Paul's concerned about here is intentional loving, intentionally blessing others in ways that strengthen their faith and their trust in God. When it comes to the issue of the strong and the weak in discernment, 
That means taking care not to unnecessarily offend others in your life in the church. Even if you have every right in Christ to do something, to still ask the question, does this build them up? Does this mature them in the faith? It's in exactly this area that I made one of the great mistakes of my ministry, maybe the greatest one actually. It was about the turn of the new millennium. It was in Hendersonville, North Carolina at Reformation ARP Church, this new church that by God's grace had been founded. Most of us were newly out of the mainline denomination. Some were exiles from other local churches which had drifted away from reformed or conservative roots. And we were mightily concerned as a church, and especially our elders, as we formed this new body, to to build it right from from the bottom to the top, to fully embrace the reformed faith, to embrace biblical worship above all else. I remember we we read Terry Johnson's book on reform worship, had a great influence on us. And we were full of zeal for these things as elders. And as we made these decisions, things went very well. And then we came to the Lord's Supper. And the issue was, what should we serve in the supper? Now at the mainline church most of us had been attending, it was grape juice. And... After much study, these elders became convinced that the regulative principle of worship required us to use wine. And we prayed about it much, and we decided the case was so strong from both tradition and, above all, from Scripture, that if we just explained it to the people, they would understand. And we would have that that sacrament returned to its its original form. Well, people aren't that simple, are they? And this wasn't that simple at all. It was very disturbing to a few families, about three or four families in the church. And uh, we proceeded onward, and we lost several families in our fellowship because of that. Uh, When Nancy and I came to Charlotte to work uh, years later, I really came under conviction that that was an error, and really a sin because, I mean, I think the text in Romans 14 and 15 should have guided us more. And so I called those families who had left our fellowship, and I asked for their forgiveness. I told them, I said, you know, we we meant well, and we were confident that teaching alone would be sufficient. And I said, we should have at least offered a mixed tray so you could have the juice that you felt compelled to use. And some of them had made promises to parents about never sipping alcohol and that sort of thing. And so we we made a a bad mistake. I I think we lost track of these verses that we've been studying in recent weeks. You know... We should be people pleasers in the right way. When we dedicate ourselves to pleasing others in the right way, 
The goal of this godly mindset goes beyond merely making people happy, though it often will. The goal is to build them in the faith, to build them up in the faith. Paul says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Have you ever noticed how much the New Testament uses the language of building to describe the fellowship of God's people in the church? Paul said in the last chapter, even just in Romans 14, verse 19, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Jesus said that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that Christ gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And he said to the Corinthian congregation, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I could go on, but I think you get the point. The church, this, this, this community of people, and not just somewhat larger churches like this, but little churches. Churches that meet in people's homes. Modest little fellowships of God's people are in fact the temple in which God dwells. The church and its life is as substantial as bricks and mortar and concrete. It should last as long as granite lasts. And it should be as beautiful Well, it should be as beautiful as this building is beautiful. This room is beautiful. That's how God sees us. As substantial and important and lasting. That's why in his word he stresses the importance of looking out for one another spiritually to maintain the unity of the body in the bonds of peace. You know, when we say the Apostles' Creed, as we did this morning here at Sovereign Grace, and we say, and and we confess that we believe in the communion of the saints, you must not think, as I did for years, that this is the somewhat less important part of the Creed. No, no. What do we mean when we say the communion? Of saints. The communion of saints is the communion the saints have, first of all, with Christ and with each other. And that is, in fact, the whole point of his coming. It's why he became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. It's why he suffered so. It's why he died and was buried. It's why he was raised from the dead and intercedes for us now from heaven. All for the enablement of the communion of the saints with Christ in the body of Christ. Now, speaking of lasting buildings, when God commanded the building 
of the great Solomonic temple in the Old Testament, it was said in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. I mean, there was never a building built like this. It was so well planned. It was so finely crafted that it rose in in virtual silence in Jerusalem. Silently, as it were, silently the, the stones were added and the holy temple rose almost supernaturally from the ground, you see. James Boyce wisely commented about that. He said, and so it is with the church. We do not hear what is going on inside human hearts as the Holy Spirit creates new life and adds individuals to the great temple he is building. We do not even fully realize the part we are playing as we seek to build these other people up by focusing on the important matters, by laying aside petty differences and preferences and teaching the word of God to each of them faithfully. But God is working. The temple is rising. And Boyce said, He is building His church today as He had before. And we are His workmen, laborers together with Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility, Boyce said, to do the work well. Now, Paul knows full well that it's hard work to be in the church, to build one another up. I mean, anyone can sign up today to join a community. Send their, you know, send your your email to them. You'll be on the list. That's, at some level, easy to do. But to build up the community by sacrificing your rights, looking after the interests of others, Others who, in some cases, you might not have chosen to be your best friends in life. But God has appointed them for you. To look out for them, not for a day, not for a week, not for a season, not for a year. But for all your lives. Now that's not easy. As we'll see shortly, it it actually takes something called endurance. So Paul now turns his attention to the resources that Christians have to persevere in this, to keep on keeping on in the true communion of the saints. First, he points to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now that's a quotation from the 69th Psalm, which is a Psalm of David. It's a, a Psalm of, of endure, about enduring attacks and persecution and, and reproaches from others. Actually, it speaks of someone else's reproaches, undeserved reproaches falling on David. Now, of course, we immediately recognize, don't we, this is a messianic psalm. This is really fulfilled so clearly in Jesus Christ. Because the, 
the reproach. I speak of the deserved reproach, the the well-deserved reproach and condemnation which our sins fully deserved fell not on us at all, but entirely on him. So you see, think of the quotation, that quotation in this context. When we're tempted to feel a little sorry for ourselves because for the sake of others in the church, we have to give up a few of our personal freedoms. Let us remember what Jesus endured for us by willingly embracing the cross. Aren't you glad tonight that Jesus did not focus on pleasing himself, but on pleasing his Father and fulfilling the great plan of redemption for us? Where would we be if Jesus had just decided to please himself instead? For though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If he was willing to do that, can we not make the little sacrifices for each other that are needed to maintain the precious unity of the church? I'll give an intentionally fairly trivial example here. I mentioned this to the Sunday school class I I was teaching this morning that for really about 40 years, counting the years before I was ordained but working in churches, I've been wearing neckties on Sunday service, at Sunday services. The Lord's Day is a necktie day in my house, has always been that way in my adult life. Except I don't really like these things. Now, in the earlier years, it wasn't so bad. I mean, I know they kind of dress you up, and that that serves a purpose. I understand the purposes and all. But but in recent years, I don't know, they've gotten tighter. (laughs) I think it has to do with having a fat neck. Christ didn't command me explicitly to wear a tie, did he? He hasn't commanded any of us to wear a tie. And in truth, uh, come January, you're not going to see these throat chokers on me anymore. <laughs> but but as, a, as a servant of the church and leader in the church, I understand this was best for the church. And it, it, and it conformed to the rules in the churches I've been in. And I, I've never bucked the system. Small thing. I mean, our sacrifices for unity in many ways are fairly small, at least compared to Jesus' sacrifice of himself. As Paul thinks about the example of Jesus and him bearing these reproaches he didn't deserve, he begins to think uh, about the whole history of God's people as it's recorded in the Word. He writes in verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We need hope. We need encouragement 
in the Christian life because life in the church can be discouraging and wearying. Say that again. Why do we need hope and encouragement in this context? Because life in the church can be discouraging and wearying. There I said it. I said it twice, actually. The Christian life can wear us out. You know, a great temple just isn't built without effort. You break a sweat building a temple. Both here in verse 4 and then again in verse 5, Paul references endurance. Now, I just want to ask you, is that not a refreshingly honest word to describe what is needed to live in the church? You know, if you're going to persevere in the Christian life, you're going to need endurance. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And when the going gets tough, and you know it will, and you know it has, the faithful get going. Now, the English word endurance comes from an old French word, endure, which means uh, to harden. Kim, correct me in this if I'm wrong later, but not now. If you are going to die as a faithful Christian and complete the journey to heaven, you're going to have to have some spiritual toughness the whole way. And you're going to have to have some spiritual tenderness the whole way. And yes, that comes from the example of Jesus, as I've already mentioned. But it also comes, as Paul says in verse 4, through the instruction of the Scriptures. The Scriptures guide us and they propel us down the road of the Christian life, keeping us from running our lives into self-indulgent ditches through sinfully pleasing ourselves first. That's what the Bible does for us. You know, I've seen so many new converts to the Reformed faith use the Scriptures as a kind of Jedi lightsaber saber, to, to, to pierce the simple faith of others and to cut away error from others. I'm not saying that is never appropriate. I'm saying that the sharp end of the Word of God should be used primarily upon ourselves, not others. Use the Word to build others up. In their faith. How the scriptures guide the life of the church and sustain its hope. Where would we be without the Bible? You know, there's this incredible feature on new cars now. Not too long ago, I was in one of those new cars. I was actually test driving it. I won't explain that to you, but... I was test driving this new car, and my, the, the man that was with me said we, we got on a back road. There was no traffic. It was just a simple asphalt two-lane two road. And he said, now this car has a lot of safety features, Dean. And he said, I want you to go across the middle lane, the middle line. And I said, what? He, he said, yeah, go take the car across the middle line. All right. So, and it auto-corrected my steering. It pulled it back to the, to the uh, center of the lane. I mean, really quite extraordinary. 
I mean, that's what God's Word does for us. It, it keeps us out of the ditches we would run into in our pride and our selfishness. Keeps us from going too far one direction or another, remaining on the blessed, forward-moving path of redemption, which is narrow in some ways, which is broad in other ways. The Word of God tenderizes us and it toughens us as we come in contact with it again and again in our own reading of the Word and, of course, in the life of the church through the preached and taught Word of God. And I do hope this church remains a teaching church. You know, uh, I sincerely believe that, uh, I'm speaking just of adult age, well, it's true for all of our ages, I know, but our adult classes are important. They should be more populated than they are, brethren. Our teachers here are exceptional compared to the average church. I know that to be the case. I think we should, for the sake of endurance and good hope, dedicate ourselves to being under the word taught, not just preached. So these two things, the example of Jesus and the guidance of God's word in the Bible, do give us encouragement, Paul says in verse 4. The word he uses for encouragement is paraklesis, virtually the same word Jesus used, to describe the Holy Spirit, the, the paraclete. It is God himself, it's the Spirit of God who works through the scriptures taught and applied and through the treasured and imitated life of our Savior Jesus to encourage us, to guide us, to accompany us, to never leave us or forsake us. This is how we must endure together and endure each other together. We have much to endure in this life. We have, some of us will have to endure chemotherapy or dialysis. Some will have to endure a troubled or, or, or some ways less than fulfilling marriage. Some of us will endure rejection from extended family for Jesus' sake. Some of us in our fellowship will endure what we used to call melancholia or, or, or now we would say personal depression. But especially in the context of Paul's argument here, endure the frailties and the failures of other believers who don't just grow in the Lord like you think they should. And you need to not only tolerate them, but love them. And I need to do the same. We must endure the communion of the saints for the sake of the communion of the saints. And there's one more thing that helps, and that's praying for each other. After talking about the example of our Lord and the guidance from the Word of God, Paul breaks into his own prayer in verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will we be ministers of prayer for each other? We must be. We must be. And now, in our 
final verses, verses 6 and 7, we begin to see the great reason that the apostle so stresses this issue in these two chapters. Have you ever thought about it? I mean, Romans is the, the, the height in many ways of uh, Pauline theology. It's the, the greatest uh, epistle of, of systematic theology in the Bible. It's, it towers above others in some respects. And, 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 and with all that fantastic theology, Paul spends several precious chapters talking about Christians getting along well. Why does Paul emphasize this so? Well, it's not just about good manners. It's not just about, you know, making sure the the machine of the church hums along without problems. Yes, it's true. All institutions need good order. All institutions need the exercise of reasonable decorum and manners. I, I was in a pizza joint this this very week and as I walked in the door the sign by the door said unattended children will be will be sold into slavery <laughs> everybody needs decorum and good order but Paul's talking about something much more important than that in the the care for the spiritual growth and stability of others in the church. Paul exhorts us to the relational labor that establishes this precious unity. And Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer that we would be unified so that our life together would be harmonious and thereby glorify God. See, there's a quality of glory that comes only through the corporate life of the church. A glory that exceeds the glory that any one of us or any few of us can bring to God. Scripture declares that God loves the gates of Zion more than the tents of Jacob. Now he loves the tents of Jacob too. What that text says is God loves the great gathering of the church even more than he loves the families and the individuals of his people whom he loves immensely. There is in Christianity this togetherness thing as one of my old elders from Virginia used to say. You know, for, for all of my ministry now, Going back to a, a, a Bible conference that Nancy and I attended in the 1980s, uh, I have on occasion, pretty frequently, when I sign uh, letters or, or, or you know, emails or things to other Christians, I have very often signed out of that letter with these words, together in Christ. We are together in Christ. There is an inescapable, heavenly, in time foretasting kind of togetherness in our life together now. And it must be protected. At the end of verse 5, Paul implies that the God-glorifying harmony between believers is like a great harmonious song, song that the church sings. As with one voice, despite differences, despite disagreements about some things, 
Gone in this picture is the discord caused by human pride and sin in the Tower of Babel. Gone is lording things over others caused by pride and a lack of love. Gone is the rampant individualism that crushes the young faith of others. Now there is but one great unified song of love and devotion and joy to God. I told you this passage takes us right as it were to the gates of heaven. But even heaven itself comes from something else. In verse 7, the apostle exhorts the church. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The word welcome here in the original language is a combination of two words. One means take and the other one means unto yourself. So this is more than just, you know, hi. It's something more than that kind of light welcome. It's more than the greeting on the doormat at the Turbeville's house, which Nancy bought a few years ago, that says, yay, you're here. That's nice. This welcome is more than that. Our welcome of one another, with all our differences, is a welcome of one another into our homes, into our lives, into our hearts. And we do that only because God himself, in Jesus Christ, has welcomed us. He welcomes us, not only into the heavenly kingdom, but he takes us even to himself. Jesus said, and, I, and if I go I prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In Jesus, God welcomes us into his own life. We become part of the inner life of God. We don't become gods, but we join in the inner life of God, that that great mutual outpouring and and mutual indwelling, that mutual upbuilding, that endlessly joyful, endlessly blessed communion of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John's gospel, we will come and make our home with you. And so likewise, we find our home in him. We've been welcomed by God. How can we not welcome each other? And so finally, we've come to that that deep secret, that deep secret that has been revealed in the gospel. For it was in the beginning that God said, let us make man in our image. And the key to understanding that image is in those plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image. Image When the one God reconciles us to one another in the body of Christ, he is, he is making us, he is remaking us into his own glorious, plural, communal image. His Trinitarian image. His free, filling, rejoicing, and loving communion. Glory to God. Glory to God for this inclusion of us into his communion. This is why we must look out for each other as we go together as pilgrims all the way home to heaven. In the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. O Lord, your, your beautiful unity within yourself is the fountain of all blessing. Blessing in creation and blessing in redemption. And we thank you for breaking down the dividing walls of hostility in our lives. We wish the whole world knew this, this unity, O oh Lord. And so help us to model it, to commit to it, to sacrifice for it, and to rejoice in it all our days, knowing that as we do so, we rejoice in your own glorious Trinitarian character. Thank you, Lord, for this great grace. And tonight especially we would say thank you for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would stand, please, for the benediction, charge and benediction tonight. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen.